If you don't know me, my name is Corey Tellman, and it is my pleasure and privilege this morning to preach on the letter to Philemon. I remember pretty clearly the first time I read the book of Philemon. I was, uh, had pretty recently become a Christian and started reading the Bible. I started with the book of Proverbs because that seemed nice and straightforward and uh, then read Nehemiah and somewhere early in there I read Philemon. And um, Philemon is a letter. It's a very personal letter. There's a lot of context to it. It's like a little snapshot of the lives of a handful of people 2,000 years ago. And I remember reading through the letter and getting to the end and thinking, I have no idea what that just said. And it was probably a couple years later, I would read it every now and then, and eventually it was like, oh, okay, I, I kind of I get what's going on here. And since then, I have at times read Philemon with people um, who they're reading it for the first time, and we get to the end, and I say, okay, did you understand what that was about? And they say, oh, yeah, and they gave me, you know, give me a really accurate uh, synopsis of it. And I'm like, oh, okay, so some people can read this and just get it. But in case you're like me, uh, I'm just going to give you a summary of what this letter just said. What I really wanted to do was go through line by line and point out each thing we learn from each thing that's said, but uh, I realized that there'd be like three of you here that would be excited to do that with me, and uh, for the rest, you'd probably just prefer a summary. Um, before I dive any further in, I want to thank a few people. Um, first, I want to thank Robert for uh, letting me do this when I heard that we were doing Philemon this summer, I was really excited to be a part of preaching this, and uh, he gave me the go-ahead, and he and Austin and I met a couple weeks ago and talked through the letter and have just had really helpful uh, conversations about what's going on and how best to teach what's in this letter, even to the point of yesterday, after he got back from camp and came here and did a wedding, he got home to find a text message from me saying, hey, Robert, can we talk about tomorrow's sermon? And called me right away and talked through a bunch of things with me. So, Robert, I really appreciate that. Um, I have to thank my wife, Kate, too, because all this week while well, I've been like, oh, I need to work on this sermon, she's been like, yep, I'll, I'll make you food. Yep, don't worry about it, and has been super supportive in making it possible for me to get this far in this week. And... Uh, also, uh, someone who's not here, uh, a friend of mine from staff, um, InterVarsity staff uh, at, at UMass Lowell, um, Isaiah Martin, um, he is someone that as I was thinking about this letter and thinking, like, whose voices do I need um, speaking into this, this letter, I, I really thought I needed to um, hear someone who was coming from a black American perspective on it, and he graciously let me call him up and bounce ideas off of him and uh, give me sometimes words of caution on how to say things and words of encouragement when he thought that I was seeing true things in this. And uh, so I just really appreciate that as well and, and wanted to make sure I acknowledge the couple people that have uh, made possible whatever wonderful things come out of my mouth this morning and everything else you can assume is just me. So... Let's dive in. Philemon, as I said, is a letter, it's a snapshot of a little moment in history. It portrays a very personal 
interaction with bigger social structural things. And um, as a result, we have to be careful in Philemon that there are certain things that we know and there's a lot that we don't know because it's not taken in the form or written in the form of an essay laying out all the facts and everything you need to know. It's people who know each other talking about situations that they're familiar with. And so there are some places where we can read between the lines and pick up on what's going on. There are other places where we just have to say, we just don't know much about this. Um, it's a letter that addresses structural inequality and injustice in the Roman world and gives us a glimpse of how some early Christians were dealing with these structures when it came to their personal lives. Um, social justice is a big deal around here. Uh, I think it would be fair in a lot of senses of the word to call it our dominant religion here in the five college area. And um, I just want to be clear that in talking about personal engagement with these social things, that I'm not in any way speaking against, and this letter is not speaking against the pursuit of structural changes in our society um, to pursue justice, legal, economic, cultural, that kind of thing. Um, it is just a glimpse of what some big abstract ideas look like when the rubber hits the road. So Austin gave us some background on this letter last week. He told us that this is a church in the city of Colossae, uh, Philemon, um, which, by the way, I don't speak Greek, so I'm just guessing on these names. I thought of giving them nicknames, but I'm just going to um, give it my best shot. Um, Philemon hosts a church in Colossae. The letter is addressed to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Afia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that meets in your house. And um, it is a letter for the church to hear. It's addressed to Philemon, but as Austin said last week, this is a letter that is personal but not private. Personally to Philemon, but read in front of his community that meets in his house. And the intro to the letter is very upbeat about Philemon and, and his church. I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So that's a little of where we're coming from as we enter into this next section um, in the book. And to summarize, Paul is in prison, either in Rome or Ephesus. Uh, we're going to go with Rome for today. He's in prison in Rome. Onesimus is a slave. He's a slave owned by Philemon, and he is in Rome with Paul. We don't exactly know how he got there. We don't know a lot about the circumstances. Most commentators that I've read seem to think that he was a runaway. He had run away from Philemon's household. He is on the run as an escaped slave in the Roman Empire, which is not an enviable position to be in. And he has stumbled upon Paul in Rome. Uh, we don't know that for sure. It's possible he had been sent by Philemon on an errand. Um, there are a number of possibilities, but we know that he is in Rome with Paul, and that while he was there, he has become a Christian. Paul refers to having uh, become his father in his imprisonment. Um, that's probably in reference to leading him to put his faith in Jesus. So Onesimus, probably runaway slave, comes to Rome, hangs out with Paul, becomes a Christian. Onesimus is a slave belonging to Philemon back in Colossae. Paul actually sends Onesimus back to Philemon, 
with this letter in hand. And the letter he sends has a request in it. But before he makes his request, there's a long, long lead up before the actual ask. So he starts in verse 8. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. That is quite an introduction. I can only expect there to be a big ask coming at the end of it when he starts like that. I could command you to do what's required. I have authority to tell you what to do, but I'm just going to let you make the right decision. And then to just lay it on a little thicker, I, Paul, an old man, and now an old man in prison, I'm just asking you out of the goodness of your heart. This reminds me a little of my grandmother uh, when she said to my dad, I just, I want to see the Vatican before I die. She didn't say, I want you to take me to the Vatican. She didn't say, you have to take me to the Vatican. Just, I want to see the Vatican. And then throw the little bit at the end before I die. So, of course, okay, family, we are packing up for a family vacation to Italy. We're going to go see the Vatican before my grandmother dies. <laughs> so Paul emphasizes that he's asking, but he also is leaving no doubt as to whether there is a right answer to this. I could command you to do what is required. This is necessary, but I'm just asking. He continues, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. It's a strange thing to say, it helps to know that the name Onesimus uh, actually comes from a root word meaning useful, profitable, beneficial. So Paul is making kind of a joke, a little play on words here. Useful over here used to be useless to you, but now he's useful again. Okay? So a joke on Onesimus's name and also that really endearing language. My child, Onesimus, whose father I became, don't forget, in my imprisonment. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart, as if the fatherhood language wasn't enough. Paul is really emphasizing how precious Philemon, uh, sorry, Onesimus is to him. He continues, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. Again, I'd, I'd like to keep him here, but I, I wouldn't want to uh, step on your toes. You just, you do the right thing. But it shows us here that, that Philemon's got some kind of authority over Onesimus, some claim to him. But when Paul continues, he says, perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but as more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
So there's a word here that we need to take a look at. That's the Greek word dolos. That's the word translated here as bondservant. It also sometimes is translated as just servant or as slave. It's a big word. It covers a lot of possible things. And it's a tricky word to translate because when we use the word slave in English, in the United States of America, in this century, for most of us, what comes to mind is our own slavery in the United States of America. We picture the American South before the Civil War. And that's a very particular kind of slavery. It was racial, it was built on a worldview that said some kinds of people identifiable by the color of their skin are born to servitude, and other kinds of people are born, made by God, to benefit from their labor. When we hear slavery in the Bible, it's important that we realize how particular and sort of unique slavery in this country was in the grand scope of human slavery and that we don't just think of slavery um, in our terms. Dolos refers to a wide possible, um, a, a wide range of possible arrangements. It could be on the one hand, uh, something that if we were to look at it today, we would say, well, that's just employment. Like that's a contract to work for someone and the person might be referred to as a dolos. Or it could be very much like what we picture, brutal forced labor from cradle to grave, and it could be many things in between. The difficulty in translating the word is evident that even in the English Standard Version, which is the translation that we're reading from today, different editions in this passage have sometimes said that Onesimus is a bondservant or a slave. So I, I think we need to, uh, not knowing what exactly Onesimus' arrangement was, we need to think about what we know about his situation, what is common to most of these definitions. And two things are common. One is that um, whether you are a voluntary servant signed up for a period of time and therefore a dolos, or you are born to servitude and therefore a dolos, you are owned by someone. You are considered property. You have no rights or barely any rights in a court of Roman law. The other is that Rome was a slave society, as was Greece, in which people were raised, much like in our own country, people were raised to think of slave and free as fundamental building blocks of identity. And if you were a slave, that was who you are. And if you were free, that was who you are. And that is how they saw themselves. To be a slave in the Roman mind was to belong to a group of people with a lesser identity. So this is what we know about Onesimus' place in Philemon's household. But when Paul sends him back, he doesn't just say, here's your slave back. He says, he was parted from you. Parted. Gentle way of saying, he ran away. You sent him away and he overstayed his, his permission to stay somewhere else. We're not sure. 
but Paul's constructing it as if God has parted them or some other external force. He was taken from you. And he's sort of implying maybe he was taken by God so that God could do this good thing over here and give him back to you no longer a slave but as a brother. I can only imagine that's a really strange thing for Philemon to read. If I were Philemon and saw myself as having a right to this guy's labor and he ran away and came back, I would be furious. And if he had a letter from my spiritual mentor saying, he was just taken so that you could have him back, not as a slave, but as a brother, I would think, where are my rights in this? What do you mean he's no longer my slave? How can he be my brother? But Paul says, he's a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Just, I think, making it that little bit clearer. He's already your brother in the Lord. You have become a Christian, and he has become a Christian, and you are brothers in the sight of God. And now he's going to be your brother in the flesh, physically. That spiritual reality that is your brotherhood is going to play out in what we experience as the real world. And finally, Paul gets to his request. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you owing me even your own self. I picture the handwriting changing from the neat professional handwriting of a scribe to Paul saying, wait, I'm going to write this part in all caps. I will repay it. I, Paul. It's a strange request, I think, to me. I read this and I think, okay, you're sending a letter back with a slave to his master. Surely there will be some concrete action step. Change your contract with him. Set him free. Pay him more something. But he says, receive him as you would receive me. His request is aimed actually at identity. He's not just asking for Philemon to treat Onesimus in a different way. He's saying, as you would receive a free person like me, as you would receive a respected person like me, as you would receive an accepted person like me, accept Onesimus. For someone brought up to see slave and free as fundamental building blocks of identity, that is a profoundly disturbing request. It would turn their social relationships on their heads. It would change so many things about their relationship with each other, and it would get at Philemon's view of himself in the world, how he sees who he is. And that's what Paul asks. I think it's funny that he says, if you consider me your partner, because in some ways, you know, Paul was sort of Philemon's social superior. He was super well-educated, well-connected. He was a leader and an authority in the church. He could have said to Philemon, if you consider me your mentor, accept Onesimus. And no one would have batted an eye. So he's even like, he's sort of building up Philemon here as well. I'm your partner, and, and as your partner, accept Onesimus. And he follows that, like, he, he backs it up with something. He doesn't just say, in theory, accept Onesimus 
as you would accept me. He backs it up. He says, if he owes you anything, if he has wronged you at all, charge it to me. I will take it on. And he ends with, yes, I want some benefit from you. Refresh my heart in Christ. That's the same thing he started saying about Philemon at the beginning. You have refreshed the hearts of the saints. He's bringing this again to identity. He's saying, Philemon, this is actually who you are. You refresh the hearts of the saints. So refresh my heart. Accept Onesimus. I said at the beginning, this is a snapshot of how these three Christians in the early church were dealing with the structures of division, of inequality, of injustice in their society. And I want to point out just a couple ways in which Paul does that and how those things are patterned on what Paul has learned about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Because that's what he does. He takes the message of the gospel and he lives it out in this situation. Paul's solution to the problem is a shared new identity. Paul, in saying, receive him as you would receive me, is not just taking aim at rules, behaviors, norms. He's taking aim at identity. And he is saying that he has a place of acceptance and he is giving that to Onesimus. At the same time, he is taking on a part of Onesimus's place in this world in offering to take on his debt. In a concrete way, he is offering to Onesimus a new identity. He even invites Philemon to identify with Onesimus. I don't know if you catch this, but when he says... I would have liked to keep him here to help me in your place, but didn't want to do anything without your permission. It's like saying, Philemon, you could be here helping me out, but it's okay. Onesimus is here for you. You have a place by my side, and Onesimus is standing in that place. So that's first. The answer is a shared identity. Second, the story doesn't actually have good guys and bad guys here. It has injustice. It has wrongdoing. But Jesus doesn't, um, sorry, Paul doesn't write this letter to simply take someone's side to overcome someone else and let one person triumph. He actually values both these guys. He talks about Philemon as beloved and Onesimus as beloved. His interest in writing this letter is their well-being and their faithfulness to God. So there's not good guys and bad guys. There are a bunch of beloved people. This is the sort of background from which we start thinking about the gospel. We are people made good by God, beloved by God, sinners, broken, oppressed by sin in the world around us that keeps us in bondage, and oppressed by sin within us. 
And Jesus, when he sees us, he sees his beloved creations, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, his family. And he puts himself on the line for our well-being, our restoration. Jesus takes on our identity. This is what Christmas is about. If you're not familiar with why Christmas is so important to the Christian tradition, it's because this is when Jesus, who is fundamentally God and therefore fundamentally not human, becomes human, takes on our identity, enters into our sinful, broken, weak identity, and shares it with us. He creates a new identity and everyone has to put something on the line for the sake of this new identity. Onesimus risks his freedom to go back to Philemon. That is no light thing that he's doing. Now he's not totally unarmed, right? He has the letter from Paul that's going to be read to the whole church telling Philemon to receive him as he would receive Paul. Telling Philemon, you will have him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a brother. And we know from the other letter to the Colossians that was sent with this letter, that he was sent with some other guys that Paul was hanging out with in Rome. So Onesimus is not uh, unarmed in that sense. He comes with powerful words backing up what Paul is asking to be done. And he comes with Paul Paul's identity on the line. And he's willing to risk it. Philemon needs to risk his identity as well in a different way. See, Onesimus doesn't have a choice but to take on a risk. As a slave, he has no rights in Rome. He can be a runaway or he can go back to Philemon. He doesn't have good options. Philemon is a wealthy dude who's a free man, socially accepted, has some social capital, and he actually could walk away from this if he wanted to and get away with that. Paul's inviting him, don't do that. You put yourself on the line too. Not just Onesimus who has to. You put yourself on the line too. You accept him back as a brother. You risk forfeiting whatever you've invested in him as a piece of property. Everyone puts something on the line. They are being asked to leave behind their old identities in concrete ways. This is what Good Friday is about in the Christian tradition. Jesus becomes human. He shares our identity. And at the cross, at the crucifixion, he takes on our sin. He takes on our brokenness. He takes on our separation from God. And he carries them to the grave with him. He lays himself down and tells us that if we lay ourselves down as well, we put our lives on the line and trust him with our lives that we take part in a new identity in which there is life. And that's the last point here, that the vision of this is a new life in a reconciled relationship. The reality, the spiritual reality here is a reconciled relationship with God. 
that Jesus has made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And the in the flesh and in the Lord part of this letter that Paul is urging Philemon to make real is that Onesimus is not his property. Forgive me, I completely forgot where I was for a moment. There we go. Reconciled relationships and a new life. This is ultimately Paul's vision for this. It's not just that there will be a legal change. It's not just that there will be an economic change. I hope what you're seeing as we walk through this and Paul's hammering on identity is that it's actually not enough to seek a legal change to Onesimus' status. It's good, but it's not enough. It's not enough for money to just change hands. He doesn't just talk to Philemon about the money. He talks to Philemon about the identity. The invitation is to go beyond um, even language of equality. Equality is a baseline. That's why he finishes with, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. What he's talking about here is a baseline, and he's hoping Philemon will go farther. So this is what I see in how Paul handles this injustice in Philemon. He sees a world in which there are broken people who are beloved. He invites us to take part in a new and shared identity built on our new and shared identity in Christ. That is the thing that makes this possible. That is the thing that makes this work that's the thing that makes it worth laying down your identity and gambling with it. Everyone lays something down. Everyone leaves behind an old identity in concrete ways to invest in a new and shared identity. And the purpose of all this is reconciled relationship to each other across social divides, across inequality and reconciliation to God. Now, in my last couple minutes, I just want to share with you what I've been thinking about this as I read this and I think about my own identity. Um, we live in a divided society. We live in a society divided by race. We live in a society divided by wealth and lots of other things. There are things keeping us apart. Some of these are done to us and some of them we carry out ourselves. And as I look at Paul inviting Philemon to invest in the identity of Onesimus, in Onesimus's place in the world across that line of slave and free, I've been thinking about who, is, who am I divided from? And what can I do to invest in their place in this world? So I am a straight white dude from the north. Uh, those are some sort of key aspects of my social identity. Um, they're basically all positions of privilege. I live a privileged life. 
And there are a lot of people who are divided from me by those distinctions in our society. People who don't enjoy the privileges that I do. Even people who are privileged in other ways, but we're still divided. We are not always one in Christ, in the flesh, like we should be. And um, I remember an experience once when I was in college, when I went to a uh, gospel choir concert. And I knew a lot of Christians at UMass. And I thought I had a pretty good idea of who were Christians at UMass. And I went to this gospel choir concert, and two things struck me. One is that it was really gospel-y. Like, it wasn't just a sort of Christian-inspired musical thing. It was preaching the gospel. It was worshiping Jesus. I couldn't believe how gospel-y it was. And the second thing I noticed is that I was one of, like, five white people in the room. And there were like 200 people in the room. And almost all of them were black. And I could count on one hand the number of black Christians I knew at UMass at that time. And I was just looking around this room like, these people are on the same page as me. These people are part of the same church as me. And we are so divided that I didn't even know they were there. I didn't even know we were divided. And so as I thought about what to do with this, one of the things I wanted to figure out how to do is invest myself in some way across racial lines. Now, there is some twisty history to race relations in our country, and so I don't have a really great and straightforward way of doing that. I also don't have a thing to hand to you and say, look, this will build identity across racial lines and everything will be better. I don't really know where to start. If you have ideas, come talk to me after. I would love to hear it. But here are two things that we've started doing. Uh, first, I wanted to find a way to actually put my money where my mouth is. And so my wife and I are moving some of our savings into a black-owned bank in New Orleans. It was just kind of bonus that it was New Orleans because I love New Orleans. So I'm like, great, someone's going to have money to work with there. Awesome. Right? But we're putting our money into an institution owned by people who come from a different racial community than me and people who are therefore invested in a different racial community than me, right? I don't even know that that's like the best way to go about this, but I, it's a concrete thing I was able to wrap my heads around. Like, okay, we will move money from here to here and put it in the hands of someone from a different social group. Cool. The second thing is I wanted to do something that would actually be personal. I don't actually have a lot of um, people of color in my life as friends. I have at some times, and we're at a place right now where I don't. And so I didn't have a lot of personal stuff to run with, like Paul does with Philemon and Onesimus, where he clearly knows them so well. So for a start, Kate and I live in South Hadley, which borders Holyoke. South Hadley is super white. Holyoke is diverse with a massive Puerto Rican population, and we've decided that uh, we've picked a restaurant there, and we're going to eat there every other week. And I'm hoping by doing that, that in addition to putting some money there, we're going to meet people, we're going to get to know people, and we're going to build a relationship. 
and invest in the identity of someone who sits across from us, uh, across from a line of social division. I wanted to have something concrete to do to apply this. There's like a million ways you could do this. All right, so um, I really, that's just a start. There are much more meaningful things, I'm sure. I wish I could come up here and tell you a really awesome, meaningful story about, um, about this kind of thing in my life, but we're really like, these are little things we're starting with. So that's what I have for Philemon today. I've talked about uh, slavery and race and all sorts of really difficult, difficult things. If I have said anything that was really stupid, I'm sorry. And honestly, that's not a joke. Um, and if any of you want to come up to me and tell me anything that, uh, that I really need to hear, uh, please do. As we finish this up, uh, we're going to take communion. I'm going to be in the back. If you want to be prayed for, particularly on any of these things, come back and I'm happy to pray for you. If you want to pray for me, please come back and pray for me. And after the service, if you want to talk to me about any of this, whether it's, Corey, that was brilliant, help me figure out how to do this thing, or, Corey, you really need to think about this thing, please do. Please come, come talk to me. We do communion every week as a reminder of the realities of the gospel, as a physical reminder of the spiritual realities of the gospel. The bread, this is matzah bread, represents the bread that Jesus picked up at the Last Supper to break and hand to his disciples and say, take this and eat it. This is my body. Now that's a shared identity. Take my body and eat it. Given for you. When supper was ended, he took a glass of wine and said, this is my blood shed for you. Take it and drink it. This is the blood of the new covenant. The way we do communion here is uh, we ask you to come up in two lines. Um, this, is, this is a mark of being part of this household. Uh, so if you're visiting, thank you for coming. If you're not a Christian, thank you for coming. Take this time to pray um, Ask God for what he may have to tell you from this text and from these ideas. Um, if you're a Christian, please come up, take the bread, take the cup. Um, you don't need to wait to all take it together. You can just uh, take it as you grab it and file around the outside back to your seat. Um, we're going to sing a song called Oh Holy Night. This is a Christmas song. Yes, I know it's a little early. O Holy Night is a song that really explicitly makes the connection between Jesus coming in the flesh at Christmas and the freedom that we are promised. It starts with, the stars are brightly shining, it is the night of our dear Savior's birth, and later one of the verses is, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. So, I invite you to listen to that song, reflect on it, and um, yeah, let it, let it shape your thinking on the relationship between the gospel and injustice. I'm going to pray for us.
and then uh, the band will come up and uh, you can come up and take communion. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for your saving work in us. Thank you for so much that you have laid down for us. And God, I pray that you will use these words from your scripture and use something from my mouth to shape us in your image as a people who love you, who love each other, who are truly brothers and sisters. Lord, I commit this day to you. I commit each of these people to you, and I commit my words to you. Will you use them as your tool for your glory, Lord? Thank you. Amen.